My name is Carly and I am an entrepreneur. These are the real, raw, and honest stories of myself, my colleagues, and my dearest friends, how we followed our dreams and continue to scale the mountain of success every day. Learn what it takes to make the next step and join us on the climb. Get ready to pull up your boss straps because this is Bossy Club. Hey guys, welcome to today's episode of Bossy Class. This is probably one of my most favorite episodes that I've gotten a chance to record. This is with my friend and colleague, Jordan Fife. I met him about three months ago during quarantine and helped welcome his baby girl Ford into the world and met his amazing soon-to-be wife, Danny. They are some of my favorite people, I won't lie. They're amazing. They're so giving and loving and funny. And Jordan is a genius in and of itself. I aspire to be like him in the entrepreneurial space. And he started out, he has a crazy story. He started out um, in the entertainment industry, managing actors and artists. Then he went and wanted to try his hand at being a professional chef in New York City And then he decided, I'm going to open up hotels. So this guy, (laughs) it's amazing. His last two properties, he's been awarded the best, number one best resort in the U.S. by Condé Nast and Travel and Leisure, number one best hotel in the entire freaking world by Condé Nast for the last four years. He knows hospitality like no one I've ever met, and he knows design like no one I've ever met. We sat in his gym and talked for about an hour. It was all recorded. And as I was editing this podcast, I'm hearing us pouring wine back and forth. That was so fun. I couldn't edit that wine out. So just pour a drink with us when you hear it. (laughs) I hope you enjoy this episode. It was such an honor for me to sit with him and talk. And I think you guys are going to really take a lot from this. Enjoy. Okay, Jordan, thanks for coming on Bossy Class with me. It feels so formal, but because we just like hang out all, I feel like all quarantine. It does. It feels, it, it feels like I've got to put on a different hat right now other than a cowboy hat, but I, I appreciate VA on it because you know, I've, I've listened to all your podcasts and I think it's a lot of fun and you guys are putting out such interesting stuff for people and it's, it's an honor to be included. Wow, thank you. Um, so I was reading about your bio and I was... So impressed, and then equally intimidated. But anyway, I'm no, that's really what it's designed to do. <laughs> yeah, I was like, mind. that's the point of it. Yeah. So, um, start from the beginning and tell me a little bit about you, your background, and how you got to where you are now. Well, I guess the, the you know the interesting part about it is is that it, it's a lot of like what I try to explain to a lot of other people um, that. It's about finding your sweet spot. And for me, that was touching on a lot of different things. You know, I grew up in Palm Springs and went to college, really wanted to do law, but then transferred over into film because I loved film. And I worked in producing uh, or worked on movies like Bride Wars. That was my I love big that movie. claim. Well, <laughs> I'm glad to hear someone say that. <laughs> But then I went over to work for William Morris, which was probably, it's probably one of the most prestigious like 
A-level Hollywood agencies where we negotiated contracts and uh, uh, devised uh, plans for for actors, writers, and directors' careers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And after having put about 10 years into the entertainment industry, I, I... uh, started staging on the side thinking, you know, what? I love I love cooking. It's so much fun. So after work, I'd go and stage at some of the best kitchens in New York when I was at William Morris. And after about 10 years in, in the entertainment industry, I left to go become a chef. Uh, and probably one of my crazier um, segues. But I did that for about a year, realizing that is a very, very tough and thankless job. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it gave me just so much respect for, for people that do that. Uh, but I went to work as a chef in a uh, hotel, uh, then transferring over and doing sales for the Viceroy Hotel Group, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what entertainment really, you know, um, trained you for. And, and that was really negotiating contracts, creating the budgets, devising a plan for for a hotel group and from there I went uh, to partner with my great mentor Steve Herman who is probably one of the most preeminent American designers uh, doing the glass pavilion Uh, he wanted to do a property in Palm Springs called the Horizon Mm -hmm. Um, so we partnered together to do that property which was an $80 a night roadside hotel in Mm -hmm. Palm Springs um, we turned that into, uh, from 2016 to actually just recently in 2020, the number one resort in the world by Condé Nast uh, and Travel and Leisure Architectural Digest. It's probably won every single award. Uh, and then I've gone on to create a couple additional hotel groups, uh, most recently working with Urban Cowboy Hotels. Mm-hmm. And... and I think to circle back, you know, the, the interesting part is, is if you look at it and you go, well, how is any of this interconnected? Mm-hmm. And it's really the journey and the travel that, that we take. Mm-hmm. And it was doing all these other jobs before that really prepare you for what you want to do. Like, I really didn't know that I loved development and design. And that's what I was doing in the side. But I also needed to understand business and contracts, and that's what the entertainment industry, you know, really provided mm-hmm. for me. You know, working and staging in, in kitchens like Momofuku and things like that. And that taught me what it was like to be behind the scenes and what was required to operate a restaurant and w- what you needed of your employees to be a leader. Mm-hmm. And it was really learning all those little things along the way that allowed me to operate and and create hotel groups because you know i think so many people approach things from from different angles but mm-hmm. it's it's so important to understand that it's it's all the parts along the way yeah. that, that really create something important it's not just having a vision it's it's about being a leader and the difference between being a boss and being a leader is being a boss is having an idea and being a leader is getting people to actually follow and complete those tasks to be able to do so. Yeah. And I think if you can't empathize and you don't understand the, the, the struggles and the consequences that go into every single position, I think it's very hard to get it right. So, I mean, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent, but I think that 
to really properly be a leader, you, you do have to understand your employees. And I, I think it's so imperative that you are able to, to do those positions as well. And there's, there is no position that's too small in a machine. Yeah. You know, the smallest bearing can go out and can destroy an engine. And I, I think that it would behoove leaders to, to remember that. Yeah. Someone once told me that leadership is about coming under and serving rather than like over. I mean, there is oversight to it, but there's this sort of profoundness of service to the people that are actually executing the overall vision of it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that, you know, leadership is, is sometimes, especially in, you know, the culture today, um, you know, it's considered an attribute and, you know, everyone's a CEO, everyone's a, a, a president of the company, but, you know, true leadership is actually understanding their employees and getting them to, to understand the tasks. And, and what a real leader, I think, understands is, is that management is very integral to that. And then mm-hmm. every person responds differently. You know, yeah. if one management style doesn't work for a hundred percent of the people and being able to to transfer that to an entire staff of five people, 10, 600, mm-hmm. that's really the challenge, you yeah. know? Um, but I think it's, it's, it's imperative to, to operating a successful business is, is to really yeah. get people to understand the story, the consequence, and, and how to work together as a team. Yeah, absolutely. So we're in hospitality in different ways, sure. kind of. So I'm curious, like, how you define hospitality. Like, what makes something... Re- I mean, you've developed a motel, $80 a night, to the number one, like, rated hotel in the globe. So what it ha- what's, the, what's the difference there? You know, I, I actually don't think that there's a difference. Interesting. You know, I think that people, you know, people do view hospitality as different. I, I grew up with hospitality. I grew up in Palm Springs, which was, by rights, a tourist destination. You know, I mm-hmm. grew up in a market that was seasonal, and I knew that because everyone from LA and the rest of the globe would come in for spring break and during the winter time, and then it was empty during the summer. Mm-hmm. My father was the CEO of the uh, the Convention and Visitors Bureau. Uh, and so he worked to bring tourism to the community to get people to spend dollars in this town. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up going to mixers. I grew up understanding how tourism and hospitality kind of worked hand in hand. But, you know, leaving that behind and understanding what tourism is and understanding what hospitality is, I think that you have to have hospitality in your blood. Hmm. When, when we look at doing properties and hotels, you know, I approach it as a story. And, and honestly, that's really what it is. Mm-hmm. It's telling a story. The, the consumer is coming to live out one. And what we're entitled to is to create this environment for them to live out that story. And mm-hmm. every time you go to a property or you, know, you, you, you run an event, mm-hmm. your client has an expectation. And your idea is to set that environment for them to live out that expectation. Mm. And so it's about anticipating. It's about creating something special. So I like to think of hospitality more as storytelling mm. than, than as, you know, 
catering to the whims. And I think if you do it right, then it's not catering to the whims. It's they're falling into the story that you've created Mm -hmm. and they're living it out. And then they're leaving and they've now been fulfilled. And and that's, that's, that's the real beauty of it. If you can do that right, that's what they're doing. And, you know, with Liz Lambert and, and Lion Porter and properties like that, it's, you're coming for a specific experience. So how do we now create that for you? And, and, you know, keep the veil there because like the difficult thing is, as I'm sure you have with events is what we have with hospitality and hotels Mm -hmm. is, there's this very thin layer there, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, a hotel, in essence, is a room that's continually occupied. And in times of COVID, that's kind of difficult, too. But the whole idea is is that you're walking into that room, and in the back of your mind, you know that someone has been in there probably five hours before, maybe having sex, you know, but being in there, occupying that entire space. But yeah. when you walk in there, you walk in with a blank slate and you convince yourself that no one else has been in there and that this is your specific space. And it's hospitality is taking away those very small elements that prevent you from believing that not to be true. And and that's the difficult thing. You leave a piece of toilet paper on the ground, you don't pull something away and then instantly you're, you're brought back to the reality of what you're actually doing. Yeah. So it, it's really about creating this illusion, allowing them to go on the ride with you. Wow. That's so true because when I think about developing events, and these events are six hours, mm-hmm. there is a sense of limit there for decor or types of food or things like that. If you overdo it, you, get, you lose people. Mm-hmm. If you underdo it, people get upset. So it's figuring out that middle that has been really interesting. And I, I think that's what I want to talk to you about too. Is like, yeah, I think this word gets thrown around a lot in our industry, but authenticity, right? Yeah. It's, it's about creating something that's authentic. Like you go to a property or you go to an event and you go, this just feels right. Yeah. And, and what I like to say is if you've done everything right, people don't know what it is. They can't point to that one thing, but they just go, ah, like... This gets me, this responds to me. And like with hotels, we do that too. Like down to what products we're carrying in the rooms, what what alcohols we have. A lot of it is like, this is your personal space. And what we're saying is, is we know who you are. These are the products you buy. Like you go to Horizon and you get Lulabo because we think that that's what you use when you're away or that's what you aspire to use when, when you're at home. Yeah. And that's the same thing with events. It's how do we create this that takes you out of your life and into a special moment, but it doesn't feel contrived, you yes. know, because when you do that and when it goes over the top, when you have like, you know, snow and foam machines and stuff <laughs> like that, it doesn't feel real. And I think the people that do it best mm-hmm. and, and that are most successful at it are able to create it in a way that you just can't understand why it's so special. Yeah. I t- could not agree more because that's what I talk with my clients about is we have to find this sweet spot mm-hmm. between, um, you know, the uh, practicality of what's happening 
and then the experience, like marrying the two. All right, so can, so can I ask you a question then? Yeah, sure. So how do you, how do you manage a client's expectations then? Because in, in hotels, we have a different expectation. Like mm-hmm. ours is we're setting it and you're coming to this. This is what you're buying. Like yeah. Amangari, people know what they're getting when they go there. Right. When they come to you and you're doing an event, how do you set that? Because you, you presumably have like this presumption of how you can do this and what what's actually right and what won't work. Right. But you have a client that wants something different or you have, you know, unreasonable expectations and you know what's going to be wrong. How do you how do you handle that? Yeah, well, I think I think with having worked in weddings for 10 years, I have a portfolio that can say, okay, this is kind of it people come to me and they see that. So then I can say, okay, this worked because of these sure. principles and these reasons. So I've had people come to me and say, hey, I want you to coordinate my wedding and that's it. And here's everything that I want you to set up. And I look at it and go, there's no way that A, anything like this amount of decor can fit in this space. And there's no <laughs> amount of time that we can set up that like it's overkill. And a Moroccan venue. Yeah, like there's things like that. And so when clients come to me and they want me to design for them, there is a very open communication of like, okay, does this design function mm-hmm. and does it actually look pretty too? But what about like, what about other entrepreneurs and people in your space that don't kind of have your background, your portfolio, and your experience. Yeah. And what would you say to them in managing a client's expectation? Because I guess like there's that difference between, you know, the client is always right and knowing what's best for them. Yeah. And, and that dalliance in between. I think there's like a thing that a lot of people in my industry don't do, which is just be bold about it. Like that's initially what I'll say to my clients is like, I will tell you no. Sure. Like in love and they're and the people that come to me actually want me to say right yes or no so there's an occasional bridezilla or something and you just roll with it and you have to deal with it if you, if you can't get through that brick wall mm-hmm. you know but generally i think people are just a pushover because they're people pleasing sure. but for me it's like that's actually not going to work because we tried it once and it sure. doesn't work. And they're like, oh, I'm so glad I have you. And then it's like diffused yeah. instantly. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. But I think, you know, yeah. the difficult thing is, is like the struggle is when I think everybody's getting started and, and maybe other listeners probably, you know, empathize or understand this is that, you know, it's that, that difficulty between... I need the business and I need to please a client to this is... This is my integrity and what I actually think will be best. And I think that we all have to sacrifice sometimes in the beginning. Like yeah. Thankfully, at this part of my career, people do come to me for the, the work that you know I do. Like That's mm-hmm. what they're specifically coming for. We develop properties in places that you're not necessarily going to. You're going to the hotel for the experience. Yeah. You know? But when you start off, it, I mean, it's, oh, it's hospitality. Hard. And hospitality is primarily the client is always right. Yeah. And, and we do that, and I think what I tell, you know, my employees, and I'm, I'm always reminded of this, uh, this valet that we had, uh, RJ, 
he was just absolutely incredible. And what he did was the second someone showed up, he always set the experience. He was the first person yes. that you met and the last person that you experienced before you left. And he was able to kind of create this sort of balance for them. Wow. And and what we told them and what he always, you know, described to me was, you know, that if if you're not a person that's that likes to have people over to your house. Like this is your house. You're mm-hmm. a, you're a host. And if you're ultimately not a host, if you can't if you can't be kind and, and sweet, if that's not your nature, probably this is not your business. It's not to say you can't make money in this business, but at the end of the day, you're a host. And I think people know whether they are. It's it's that type of personality. Mm-hmm. Like, do you have people over? Like for brunch and, and, and cook things and want to like take care of every person that comes into your house. Yeah. I mean, that, that's part of culture and, and, and hospitality, I think, is either ingrained in you or it's not. Yes, and agreed. And I think that there's always different aspects of the business to, to venture out into. But I think at the end of the day, I like to consider myself, you know, a host and that everyone that's coming, it feels like they're coming to my house and I want them to feel as comfortable as they would if they came to visit me for a weekend. Yeah. Have you traveled around a lot and stayed at many hotels and done market research on that? Of like, how do I experience this hotel and what do I want? And like all of that, is that how you did a lot of figuring out what your customer wanted? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's like a couple sided and I'm giving an anecdote. I think it's really interesting. You know, on, on one side, like you do have people that, open up hotels and restaurants that are like, oh, I go to all the fanciest hotels in the world. I know what a fancy hotel is. Or, you know, I eat at restaurants all the time and they go to open restaurants. And it's like, yeah, well, but you also don't like do your taxes once and think you're a CPA. Like that's, it's the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard. It gets a lot of people into trouble. Yeah. Because... That's really not what it is. There's a lot of things that are involved into creating hotels and restaurants. A lot of people lose their shirts in them. Most properties, you know, have less than a a 20% ROI and margins are super, super slim. A great operating restaurant, maybe 18 if you're lucky, 12% most likely. Wow. Uh, And so margins are really tight and people that get into the business for the wrong reasons are crazy. But... Yeah, I think, huh. you know, part of what I do is is always knowing what's out there, what's better, and what's hip and what's cool. And it's not about stealing from it or or copying it, but it, it's knowing kind of where the shifts are and appreciating what other, and I like to say artists, are doing in mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of sense. I, I think I'm always reminded of the first thing, you know, that... Uh, uh, Steve Herman, my mentor and partner, taught me was he used to tell me like when he was in the real estate business, he would go to the Georges Sank in, in Paris, and mm. you know it's considered one of the preeminent hotels, and it's two thousand, three thousand dollars a night. And he would go and stay there, and he'd say, you know, you know, I go, and it wasn't that I could afford to go. Sometimes it was a real, real stretch to make it happen, but. I went there not because it was easy and that's where I, I I just had to stay. I went there because 
I wanted to be the person that stayed there. And mm-hmm. what that said about me, I could stay at the Georges Sank. Like that's, that's who I am as a person and I deserve that. And even if it was stretch, I would do that because it, it, it really created an identity within him. Wow. And I think a lot of these properties are like that. I mean, we stay at Four Seasons sometimes, not because it's in our budget, but because it makes us feel something when we're there. And, and I think that we forget sometimes that a lot of these weddings, you know, events, hotels, are an emotional you know, response. And, and that's why we do those. It's not... None of it is practical. I mean, if it was practical, we'd all be staying in Motel 6s, but... That's not what it's about. It's about mm. what it says to you and what it says about you. Yeah. And so when I go and stay in properties, I mean, I justify it that I'm doing market research. <laughs> and maybe I shouldn't be staying in some of the ones I do. But, you know, I it, it's part of who I am now. And I, I love it. And I love seeing what other people are doing and appreciating the small little yeah. things that are just different. Yeah, absolutely. I stayed, I did a really cool trip for my 30th birthday two years ago in Paris and I stayed at all these hotels that I had seen on social media (laughs) and I took photos and I tagged them and it was this whole thing but it was looking back I still do not regret spending the extra cash and going to these cool places and experiencing like what they were even if you walked in you're like wow that was way smaller than I thought it was gonna be or whatever it is like you're totally right it is a part of like the style and what you portray and who you who you want people to think you are and all of that. And, and, and it's so weird because I teach entrepreneurship to a lot of people and I operate all my own businesses. So like at heart, I'm a pragmatist, hmm. but I'm also a lover. So it kind of flies in the face of what I tell people or what I understand. Yeah. But I, I think that if you can't like get there, then what's the point, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I mean... I had that experience with uh, like urban cowboy hotels. I think that they just do something special and cool. And the first time I walked into the one in Nashville, I was like, this is something different. You know, right. it's something special. And it, it, it's a thing that's really hard to recreate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that when people find that sort of thing, like you hold on to it and mm-hmm. it means something and people build their own history and their lineage based upon those sort of things. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And I think if people can have fun, you know, the, the, there you go. Yeah, totally. So you run your own, all your own businesses. You mm-hmm. partner with a, a liquor or you CEO of a liquor oh, okay. company. Uh, if, if you're talking about, yeah, uh, avant-garde spirits. Avant-garde um, spirits. Got it. So it's one of the founders and CEOs of that. That came about um, based upon having these hotels, Mm -hmm. you know, and trying to solve the problem of, you know, what happens when, you know, the bar closes, you go back to the room, and some properties don't even have a bar in them. True. And if you're spending three, four hundred, let's say eight hundred dollars a night, you go back to your hotel room and you've got like a small, like, airport bottle of Jack Daniels, maybe a Coca-Cola in the refrigerator or a ginger beer or ginger ale. Usually it's some terrible mixers. And you've been sitting at the bar, this sexy bar where, you know, you've glanced across this beautiful woman or or man or whatever. um, And you've been encapsulated in this environment and you come back to your room and you want to continue your experience that you're kind of stuck with just either a shot of 
alcohol or a very poorly mixed drink and, and at most times no ice. And so the idea kind of spawned from how do we create something that seamlessly transitions from the bar to the room? Wow, and genius. What we did was we created the, 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 the top 12 perfect cocktails and classic cocktails and we, we like to perfect them and created them so that they only need to be stirred over ice so that a martini that you were having in the bar that you can then have in your room and they look like Chanel number no. 5 or Tom Ford bottles so they're sexy, they belong in Rosewoods, they belong in, in, in Amangaris and properties like that but they can also be experienced at a bar. I mean, what people don't mostly realize is that bars batch their cocktails mm -hmm. on, on busy nights and things like that. And so if you can have that perfect martini and we've created it for you, mm -hmm. then, then there you go. Yeah. yeah. That's genius. So you've done so many incredible things in your career in different fields. What defines, in your opinion, an a good, successful, I guess, entrepreneur? Because Entrepreneur doesn't mean you're successful. It means no, you're going no. after something and hoping it works. <laughs> right, but I think that there's a f some sort of freedom in that, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I don't know what necessarily design, de defines a, a successful one. I, I would tell you what I have felt successful in. Um, you know, I've had the opportunity to go into communities that needed its landmark reinvented and brought back to life that was a, a main employer for a community and things like that. And we, we would go into them and we'd like to really bring it back to life for the town, for the people, for them to be proud of. We'd go in, we'd like to hire local makers to do, you know, artwork, woodwork, craftsmen, Things like that so that everyone in the community felt that they had a part in what this this building was, what this center of their, their town was. Hmm. And on the side, it always felt like if you could give back, I thought that was really important. And I know that's kind of like passe these days when we talk about, you know, communities and, and justice and equality, but... Uh, on a macro level, it was really about, you know, giving back to these towns and these people because I've always felt like, you know, entrepreneurship and businesses can sometimes seem like magic, you know, how like electricity is like magic until you actually figure out how that works. Yeah. And to a lot of young people, what we were doing seems like, oh, well, I've got to have like $50 million to be able to do this. And really what transforms and create these communities are the new voices and the new people that are, that are contributing to them and, and building their own individual businesses and putting things in restaurants and uh, shops and, and clothiers into these towns. And so what we'd like to do is we, we go into these towns and we also mentor people to say, hey, Let's talk. What is it that you want to do? Here is a business plan. You want to walk through this? This is how this works. Let's show you how you can open your own business, how it's not, you know, a 1% sort of opportunity that you can do, that anyone can right. do this. You just need to be giving the tools. And once you're given the tools, it's not magic anymore. 
And, right. you know, that's kind of culminated to be able to, like, speak at and lecture at, like, um, Cal State Chico to the tourism and the entrepreneur classes and clubs and to be yeah. able to give back to a lot of people that kind of feel trapped in their positions and in their jobs and to say, hey, you, you know, you don't have to do that. Like, if you just look at kind of the general options yeah, and if we give you those step-by-step step and follow behind you, you can be successful at this too. And I think that's mm-hmm. the biggest freedom and that's the biggest success about being an entrepreneur is allowing other people to, to do it too. Yeah, absolutely. Hey guys, it's your girl Carly. I'm here to tell you about the coolest flower delivery service that exists. It's my sister company, Primary Petals. You may have heard of Primary Petals before, but did you know that we are going nationwide? It's an amazing service that sends really cool and unique flowers to anyone's doorstep in the lower 48. Guys, we have sent to every state and every bouquet has arrived so beautiful and so fresh, which if you know, is no small feat for shipping flowers. For my listeners, I'm giving 10% off using code BOSSYCLASS at checkout. If you want to learn more, please visit primarypetals.com. And I mean, for me, it's been, you know, a trial and error, but in figuring out how business works, not being a business major, communication major with a journalism emphasis. Sure. (laughs) I was was an English major in college, so I get it. Yeah, but I should have been a business major. But now having had so many opportunities and seeing success and failure on both sides, there is a sense of like, wow, this is a science of it. And the more like the next venture I take could flop, but the next venture I take could be the biggest success of my life. And so there's this sort of roulette, so to speak of like, you don't do entrepreneurship because it's, it's it's an equality to success. No, I agree. I, I, I wouldn't be sitting here and being honest if I said that every single business I've done has been successful. It's not. Yeah. I, I've had several that have not done well. I mean, more often than not, they have been. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's that old adage that, you know, success is preparedness meets luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and I think that that really is. If you're prepared and then opportunity arises and the timing is right, yeah. then then you're there to strike. But if you sit around and you don't want to do anything about it, then obviously it's never going to be successful. Um, totally. But I, I think that what's important is it's trying you know, yeah. and, and being proud of the attempt that you've made and knowing uh, when to say when. And I think that's been one of the, the more difficult and hardest things about entrepreneurship and I think that one of the most important is, is to know when to walk away when this is it's a dead end and it's not right yeah that's something that um I we've talked about privately sure um and also obviously want to touch on today is like yeah how do you know I mean my personality is like I will fight till mm-hmm. the knuckles are bloody, you know, and there's moments where people in, in personal life and in business life where they just go, I wouldn't have waited this long. I wouldn't have fought this hard. And I'm a, I'm a fighter through these trials and things like that. But you had said something a couple weeks ago. It's like, yeah, it's to know when to say when Mm -hmm. is very, uh, is, is a art in and of itself. 
No, it, it absolutely is because I think there's a difference between like like ignorance, headstrongness, and the calculated move. Yeah. And that was a difficult thing. You know, I, I, one of the other things that I learned a lot from uh, Steve Herman was one of the reasons he was super successful in his developments and his properties prior, prior to getting together was most developers would option a budget, create it to the end of a property, mm-hmm. and then at the very end of the property, they'd run out of the budget, you know, at that 90% mark. Right. And so then they'd cheap out on some of the fine finishes and the extra details at the very end. And right. he was always willing to push it, even if it put him further over the line, way beyond where he needed to be. It was about finishing the project to completion and doing it right. Yes. And it was that extra like 10, 20% that most people weren't willing to go to that were like, we've set this. And, and it kind of flies in the face of pragmatism in a lot of ways is saying like, this is what our budget is. This is where we set it. Yeah. And then it was pushing to be proud of what he had been completing. Mm. And it's why he sent records for the highest per square foot, you know, build in all of Los Angeles. And he did that, you know, numerous times was because where most people said, I'm stopping, he continued. Now, that goes both ways in the sense that, like, some people will continue a project way after the the point of, of, you know, End. And right. one of the things I learned in development is that, you know, there's a difference between completing a project and starting one and understanding, you know, when and where in development that you actually have to walk away. And the tough thing in development, I think, is not being necessarily personal about it. Mm-hmm. It's about getting personal about it once it's there. Yeah. But... As entrepreneurs, we, we start maybe 10, 15 projects, and let's say three of them actually go through. Mm-hmm. And so it's not about getting personal about every single one of them and understanding at what point to stop fighting and go, like, this one is not going to happen, right. or this one shouldn't happen. Right. And that's the tough thing. It really is mm-hmm. because, you know, as, as a developer and designer, sometimes I get really emotional about them and it's about knowing when this one is actually dead. You need to cut your losses and you need to move on with the resources that you have. Yeah. And that's a science in and of itself. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult. And I don't think they teach that to a lot of people is that there will be others and Mm -hmm. you can put your resources in the remaining ones, but it's about taking those limited abilities or those differences in each single one of them and using them as assets. And that's really, that's really the challenge is knowing, Hey, this, this one is, is not going to be it. And it's not worth pushing it to, to where you're just going to end up bankrupting yourself off something like this. Yeah, totally. Oh man. I've been in situations like that too, where it's like I've pushed something out and it's like hasn't got the response and I pushed it out more, no response. It's like, okay, like this isn't clicking. Whereas I, I think as an entrepreneur, if you've experienced that like magical sweet spot mm-hmm. before, you kind of go, oh, that's what I'm looking for here. Sure. And if it's not happening, then like maybe this isn't it. Yeah. 
and then moving to the next thing and the next and the next. Yeah, and I think that at the least tough for me, thing with development is is you can fall in love with something and go like, look, everything on paper works, and this is it, and you hit a roadblock, and you go, no, well, we can patch that, we can band aid that. And you get all the way down the line and you've just band-aided everything. And all the signs are telling you, this is not it. And if all those band-aids actually come through, you're putting yourself in a hole to actually make this happen. And you're going to be so far behind the gun when you actually set up this roof. Oh, we can get a retrade on this roof. We can... can we can put a new one in for this or, yeah. or the patching is going to be okay. And those things start to line up and you, you have to understand when to lock, walk away and when to understand that it's not personal Yeah, and that's okay. Um, mm-hmm. And it's about knowing when to get personal about something that's, that's right. Yeah. Does that also translate to, let's say a deal is presented to you mm-hmm. with a partner or with an opportunity and you figure out, you know, what, I guess, if it's meant to be or not for you. Is that the same kind of thing? Like, Yeah, look, I think that, you know, when you, when you start down the line and you start to get noticed and, you know, part of what I do is about press and, and putting yourself out there publicly, you, you do get off. And I think it's about equating to what you think potentially could be successful based as to what was just going to be spinning your wheels. Yeah. And, and that's a difficult decision. And sometimes, you know, there are, there are strong financial reasons to take these. Mm-hmm. And I think you can convince yourself to say, look, I can make that work. But, you know, it's about going back to the pragmatist version of yourself and saying is this worth my time is this something that can be successful and it's it's it is okay to give your time up to opportunities and ventures that you have a passion about but yeah but you do have to balance the ability to profit from it especially if this is your your main income mm-hmm. um or, or if it's you know a a, a hobby and really I think where it devolves into is what's worth my time? Is it equitable to have a certain amount of money to a certain misery and time that's, that's built into things? And I think that we, we all struggle with that. I think a lot of people take jobs that are going to make them unhappy or unfulfilling or things like that because we need money. But... I think if you're starting out and you have a brand and you have an idea, it's about really keeping in line with what that is, keeping that essentially as pure as possible yeah. and and developing things that really push that forward. Interesting. So let's say I'm starting a company or I'm working with a partner. Is there, I've read that you're profitable after five years, but is that, is that true? Or is that something, what's the expectation when you're starting something out? I mean, is it different with everyone? Well, it's a really tough question because I mean, there, obviously there's outliers. I, mm-hmm. I think that's really important to note. Uh, and, and I think it also depends on the business. Yeah. You know, there are people that have developed business and haven't taken any outside money uh, that have gone shoestring and they've, they've built it upon 
their sales and what they have as expenditures. And then there's ones that have taken hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars to take that big next leap. Um, and it's very different. I, I think that I think the more important question than that is is when you're starting a business is is how that business plan and performa go because a lot of people want to have expectations to grandeur and to what we can do mm-hmm. and a, a bank and and benefactors you know they they see through the bullshit they. The literally, like when we were in the entertainment industry, our job was to find the script, to find the script. And there were thousands of people that were juniors and assistants that were going to make their career on finding that script. So they could sense the bullshit and they knew it was real. And when you put out a business plan that shows you're making $2 million in your first year of operations, most people know that that's not true. And... <laughs> It, it's very tough. There is a ramp-up period. I think it's important to have a capex to know hmm. what you're going to need to put aside. And if you break even your first year, great. There are ways to start a business and see profitability within the first year. You know, if you're absolutely tight and you hit the right marketing and you have the right response, it's probably pretty rare. I think by year two or year three. It, it's absolutely possible. It, it 100% is. The question is, is are you paying yourself? That's an important thing to do. Because if you're looking at investors and you're showing them, look, I make $100,000 my first year. And they're like, but you're not paying yourself and someone else. So that's actually negative $20,000 this year once you equate to that because that's not a real business. So I think it's about being practical hmm. and real. Mm-hmm. Um and whenever I business plan someone or I create pro formas, I like to err on the conservative side and say, look, I think we can do 15% better than this, but let's just cut the line here and let's, let's better expectations. Let's, yeah. let's under promise and over deliver. And yeah. I, I think that people need to be realistic about that. Yeah. But you know, I, I think if the numbers are showing what they're showing, that's also the difficult thing too. Like I've brought in performers where it's like, well, how can you possibly do that? It's like, well, this is literally what the numbers are showing. Like, yeah. And and we've done numbers like that. I mean, no one. One of the funny things was was with Palm Springs property, Lori's own. Um, everyone was like, a luxury hotel doesn't work there. It just doesn't. Hmm. Um, there's no way you can do it. It's not possible. It's not been done. And, you know, the response that we had was, yeah, no, it, it hasn't been done. And that's the problem, is that the clientele is out there, but no one's built anything for that clientele. Right. No one thought we could get $700 a night. No one thought we could get $2,000 a night. We were selling for 2000 to $20,000 a night for our, our largest suite at that property. Wow. So it, it, it sincerely is possible, but I think that tempering expectations, knowing what you're going to go into with, and I think that's what's the most important part, mm-hmm. is preparing for a loss and overperforming. Because expecting a profit in the first year and not getting it is going to essentially defraud your investors. It's going to 
take every dollar out of your pocket and it's going to bankrupt your business. So be prepared for that not to happen, but hope for, for, for the positive. Yeah. It's like living with open hands, right? And trying really hard. It's like you got to train and not get your head too big. <laughs> right? Right. But, you know, the, the adverse to that is, is, is doing the press and the marketing and understanding that that's what that is and not mm-hmm. allowing that to get to your head. And it's the funny part about it. It's that third-party validation that actually really gets the numbers on your books. Like, you can tell me how much Primary Petals is the best flower company in the world and that you guys do the best events. But until I read it in Marie Claire that says that that's the best, when they tell me you're the best, I'm like, oh, they are the best. And then it's very funny. And so you also have to realize that, well, but that's what they're saying. They're looking for content and that's how that works. And to not necessarily just believe in that, that now you are the best and you don't need to continue to produce and continue to, you know, evolve and, and mm-hmm. be a great company. And, and I think that that's a funny thing and a lot of people get tripped up on. It's, it's an integral part to our business is marketing. And yeah. it's, it's a game you have to play. Yeah. But it's... It's not the be-all, end-all of Mm -hmm. business. No. No, it's not. So, like, I'm curious because I've gone through hell and back, up and down with, like, my ego. And, oh, I built this awesome company. Oh, like, this event wasn't the best. And I'm the worst. And I go through all these mental gymnastics. So, for you, like, how do you stay, like, grounded in all of this success when you do find it? I think it's about, and I mean, I'm not the right person to, to I mean, you're a very grounded right. person. That's why it's part of the question for it. <laughs> well, but you know what? Like, I think that uh, things like COVID and, and our current situation yeah. has humbled a lot of us. And yeah, it, true. It's, it's fun to say you've got the number one property in the entire world. It's fun to get, you know, $300 million development deal to create your own hotel groups and to, to work for, you know, the people and the artists that, that, you know, inspire you the most. And then to have a complete shutdown of an industry yeah. and to be thrown in essentially to the same, you know, cauldron that we're all in and... You know, it's to understand and appreciate it while it's there, but mm-hmm. to understand that it doesn't last. No one stays on top forever. It just, it doesn't yeah. happen. It's great to be able to reinvent yourself. You look at Ian Schrager and creating like the Hudson and the Royalton and these properties in New York, and he was the first boutique hotelier. And then it became gauche and passe, and now he's reinvented himself again but we go through ups and downs in our careers Mm -hmm. and it's to appreciate the highs and understand them but to be humble Hmm. in them as well and to know that the lows are going to come and and it's about how to reinvent and proceed and to also understand and this is the difficulty I've had with myself as well is that I've I've had such a difficulty with not ascribing my professional success to my self-worth. And I think that those are two very different things. You know, we, we in America, you know, we live to work. And mm-hmm. most people, you know, work to live. And there's a very 
difference there. And I think that I fall into the, the former where my value has always been in, in what we can create, what we can do. Mm-hmm. And I think it's about understanding that we're humans and we're people and that the work doesn't define you and yeah. it's okay uh, to be individual. It's okay to be successful. It's okay to not be successful. Um, yeah. And I think that's the, the beauty of, of life is to, to go on some of these adventures sometimes, but to understand that they don't define you. Totally. Yeah. And that's something that I've started to learn in COVID too. When all, like you said, all of us are in sort of a cauldron of, I mean, it, it has spared no one. Sure. Right. Yeah. So it's like, we're all just, you know, here with our grown out hair and, and everything. So I have one last question for you um, that is a little off script, but nevertheless important. Um, You've been in partnerships before, and I'm curious when it's um, when you have found it appropriate to enter a partnership as well as exiting a partnership. (laughs) I've I've entered and exited a few. It's tough because I think that sometimes opportunity presents itself when you're successful and a partnership can be really beneficial to Mm -hmm. you. I've done them because um, I've always felt that when I've entered into them that they provide something that I don't necessarily provide. Yeah. Whether it was financial, whether it was business acumen, or design acumen, or anything like that. I've always, when I approach any sort of business, it's always been, how do I, you know, uh, create an environment around me that fills all the gaps that I have in myself? Yeah. And I think that's the most important part to look at, um, as opposed to, this is just money, and money is going to solve the problems, because it doesn't. You know, you, you want a partnership that not just brings money, but that brings experience, that brings abilities that you don't necessarily have. Mm. Um, I mean, I've entered into my, I started my first company when I was, I think, like 19 years old. I had a, a commercial production company and I had partners that they had money and I just went <laughs> with it. And it was a very successful commercial production company, but um, we... We started off and it was good, but then they never met any of the expectations of the LLC. Hmm. And I realized like my name was on all these documents and all of these agreements with them and they're not fulfilling their ability. And that, that can be problematic because you're in a legally binding contract with all these people. If they mm-hmm. screw up, if they embezzle, if they do anything like that, you're tied to that. Mm-hmm. So understand that it's not just a... A business relationship is personal and it, it's legal. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about finding people that complement, you know, who you are, and understanding also when to walk away from it if it doesn't behoove your business. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be a good personal relationship if you can be successful business-wise. Hmm. Um, and it'd be great if you could do both, but that's often sometimes not the case. Yeah. So I think that we, we look for people that fill those gaps. I think like we do in our, uh, our emotional life. It's what I did with my, my partner and my, my beautiful future wife. She fills in those rough spots that I have. And 
I look for that when there's people that I work with because we only have a limited time on, on this earth. And yeah. I want to be working with people that, you know, that make you happy, that can benefit you, and um, that create an experience that's, that's, you know, joyful and beneficial. Totally. Wow. You are a well of knowledge, Jordan. I could sit and talk with you for hours and hours. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you want to share now, now that we're, uh, we're still recording, but anything at the end? You, wanna... uh, no, you know what? Um, not that I want to share, just that um, I think the, the perspective on all of this has changed. I just had my, my first child. She's so cute. Um, and I love her so much. <laughs> I remember doing a documentary like two years ago, uh, and they were like, well, what, what do you want to be remembered for? And I said, mm. I want to be remembered as a good father. And I, I wasn't a father then. I didn't even have a glimmer of it. But it's really changed how um, I perceived life and everything mm. uh, and, and business. And I think having a child, going through COVID, I think it's difficult for everybody. But knowing that there is, you know, there is a bright side. We are going to come out through the other side of this. And... Mm. I think that we just need to hold fast and strong and understand that people are resilient, that love is love, and the human condition is to, it's to be among each other, it's to be personable, it's to be social. Mm-hmm. And so if you're in the event business, if you're in the hospitality business, it's, it's a glimmer of hope. And I, I think it's just a matter of holding on, loving each other, respecting the people that are doing this and understanding the sacrifices that everyone's having to make. And, um, and I'm just excited to see what happens next. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Wow, thanks, Jordan. Thanks That's for coming on. Yeah, that was really fun. <laughs> Let's finish this bottle of wine and yeah, go see your right. kid. <laughs> do you want to do some like leg presses? Yeah, we're in, the gym. Wanna... we're in his gym right now. <laughs> thanks, Jordan. My pleasure. This podcast is edited and published by the Primary Pedal Studios, written and hosted by Carly Ray Williams. Show notes are located at our website, carlyrayweddings.com forward slash bossy class. If you like what you heard today, subscribe, rate and review us. Sign up for our newsletter to receive exclusive content and bonus episodes. Thanks for joining us as we scale the mountain of success. This is Bossy Class.